Welcome to the Nourish, Eat, Repeat podcast, helping people who want to improve their health and change their mindset around food so they can live the life they were designed and called for. I am your host, Adrian Delgado, and in this podcast, I'll give you step-by-step action plans to reach your health goals, as well as my favorite recipes I know you and your family will enjoy. Let's get started. Welcome back to another episode of Nourish, Eat, Repeat. So I am excited to announce that we survived our first road trip of the summer. Uh, We just got back a few days ago. We drove to Michigan to see my sister-in-law, but we actually made a few stops along the way because the Delgado family doesn't know how to do anything halfway. We just have to jam everything packed with as many activities and stops along the way. So I can officially cross off driving in the middle of the night off my bucket list. But let's be honest, it never was on my bucket list because, you know, I'm in my 40s and that does not sound fun at all. But we did it. Uh, I got off of work around 7 last Thursday and we were on the road by 7.30. And Jim took the first shift. He drove the first three hours. I took the the second three-hour shift. Uh, The tricky thing is Jim often falls asleep when driving, so I I couldn't rest while he drove because I had to make sure I stayed awake with him. And so he drove the first three hours. I drove the second three hours. We actually went to Notre Dame first, the college, to, to visit for my oldest son, Jake. And, um, and then he drove a little bit. I, I was like, I got to fall asleep a little bit. So I told Parker to sit in the front with Jim and keep him awake. And I'm pretty sure Parker fell asleep within 15 minutes. So the fact that we got to the rest stop alive is a small miracle. We slept in the car for an hour and a half. Um, Parker slept in the front seat. Now, I don't know if I've mentioned before, Parker, my, my middle son, he's about 6'3". So I gave him the front seat to sleep because I knew he needed some leg room. And so I was in the middle of the other two boys in the second row. The girls usually sleep, uh, they sit in the back. And so I'm sitting in between my, my oldest and youngest son, which, you know, they're about both close to six foot. And so, you know, as boys, they, they tend to sit with their legs far apart. So I'm, I'm trying to like take up as little space as possible and sleep on my shoulder. So I also learned that it took about a week for my neck not to hurt anymore because I'm getting older. I can't sleep with my head on my shoulder and expect to just jump back the next day. So We drove to Notre Dame, and then from there, we drove to University of Michigan, and we visited that school. And then after that, we drove to our hotel and stayed the night. We are big Drury Hotel fans. I know there's not one in the Philadelphia area, but there's one in Pittsburgh and out west and down south, and they are our favorite hotels ever. Uh, Number one, because we can all fit in a room. I usually get a larger room for six, and then we ask for a cot, so that gets us seven beds, and um, they have free breakfast, so we're all about that, and they also have what they call a happy hour from 5.30 to 7, which you should hear that as free dinner, so 
between breakfast and dinner. And then they have like popcorn and drinks from four to eight. We have snacks at night. We have a pool. I mean, the Delgados, like we take advantage of every single thing they offer. And the expense isn't any more than a regular standard hotel. So whenever we find a Drury, uh, that is where we stay. I highly, highly recommend it. So we stayed in our hotel the first night. The second day we spent with my sister-in-law and her husband. Uh, went to Lake Michigan, saw the town of Holland, which was really cute. And then the following day we drove to Sagatow which is a little town south of Holland, I believe. And we did some hiking and dune buggy rides and, um, and then had a picnic with my sister-in-law's husband's family. Got to meet all of them. So the days were packed. And then we left early the next morning to go to um, go home because my oldest son was leaving to go with a friend. My kids called the whole week or the whole week, the whole two days, a vacation after my oldest son, Jake, because it was filled with running around to college visits. I forgot to mention, we visited Michigan State the one morning. Jake and I woke up really early and drove out there to visit that college, which I really liked. And um, so it was funny. So the whole thing was called a vacation. And then we stopped in Pittsburgh for lunch. And went to see the Flight 93 Memorial, which was really moving, and was home exactly four days later. So jammed a lot in, and and it was fun. And we're very careful about food. We try to pack a lot of food when we go somewhere just for the expense of it all. Um, but making sure we're getting lots of fresh fruits and vegetables. I have to say, though... I even noticed that I was going to the bathroom less when we were on vacation, not for lack of water, but for lack of consistent fruits and vegetables. So guys, eating fruits and vegetables has a huge impact on your hydration level. And even missing out on a few um, servings today throughout the day can have an impact on hydration. So that was just a really cool insight on my part that I was like, huh, all right, I must be doing something right at home and just helped me stay more focused to seek out more sources because it absolutely impacted uh, my hydration. So yeah, that was our big exciting trip. Uh, We're gearing up to go on our our actual vacation in a little over a week. So I'm sure I'll have more information to share after that. But I just wanted to kind of bring you up to date with what's going on in, you know, in our area, um, in our family. And yeah, exciting things. So that is not the only reason why you tuned in today is to find out what's the latest with our family. Uh, Today, we're actually talking about a question that I get very often, which is, what is insulin resistance and how do I know if I have it? It's a fantastic question because these are words you may hear um, your doctor speak about, you may read articles about or see headlines about insulin resistance. And 
may hear family members or friends start talking about this concept of insulin resistance. So it's actually a really great question to ask. Uh, Actually, more than 84 million people in the United States, age 18 and over, have insulin resistance. So that's basically one in three adults. So yes, it's a really good question to ask, do I have it? Because it affects roughly 33% of the population. So great question. So let's talk about what is insulin resistance. But first, before I get into talking about that condition, first I want to explain to you what happens in a normal, healthy, functioning body. Specifically, I want to introduce you to the pancreas. The pancreas is an organ that sits kind of right behind your stomach, right in the middle of your body, and it has two major functions. It has an exocrine function, which uh, that deals with creating enzymes to break down foods, and it has an endocrine function, which is responsible for producing insulin to help manage blood sugars. So in this episode, we're going to be talking specifically about the endocrine function of the pancreas, okay? In a normal, healthy, thriving pancreas, uh, when you eat food, that food gets broken down into sugars and released into your bloodstream. Your blood sugar then rises accordingly, okay? Your blood sugar will rise dependent on what types of foods you eat, and the volume of foods you eat. Okay, those two things will uh, affect how high your blood sugar goes up. So you eat food, depending on what you eat, how much you eat will determine how high your blood sugar rises. And when your blood sugar starts to rise, the pancreas gets alerted because sugar's getting high, let's do something about it. And so the pancreas, in return, produces the hormone insulin. And insulin's job is to gather up all that sugar in your blood and move it, herd it into your cells so you can use it for energy. See, sugar in your blood can happen momentarily. That's a normal response, but it can't stay there. Because if the sugar stays in your blood, it just makes everything sticky which increases your risk of diabetes and cardiovascular disease. We don't want the sugar to stay in your blood. Plus, you can't derive energy from sugar when it's in your blood. It needs to actually go into your cells so it can be converted to energy. Okay? So you eat, the food gets broken into sugars, your blood sugar rises, your pancreas is alerted, and in return it produces insulin. Insulin gathers up all that sugar in your blood and transports it into your cells so that it can be used for energy. When the sugar is no longer in your cells, because it's, I'm sorry, when the sugar is no longer in your blood, because it's in your cells where it's supposed to be, your blood sugar starts to fall. And I don't know, somewhere around three, four hours after your last meal, or maybe even sooner, depending on what you ate and how much you ate, the decrease in your blood sugar might create cues in your body to start to be hungry again, right? A lowering blood sugar usually sets off 
your ghrelin hormone to alert you that you're hungry so that you eat so that your blood sugar can rise again. And then insulin will do its thing. It'll gather up the sugar, move it into your cells. Your blood sugar will fall. And with the next meal, it will rise and then it will fall. And that is just a normal pattern of a healthy functioning pancreas. You eat, blood sugar goes up. Pancreas puts that sugar into your cells. Blood sugar goes down. You get hungry, you eat, blood sugar goes up, then it goes down, up and down. You following? Okay, that is what a healthy pancreas does. It responds to the amount of sugar in your blood by producing insulin to help usher that sugar into your cells. Now, insulin resistance is when the cells in your muscle, fat, and liver don't respond well to insulin and can't take up the glucose from your blood. All right. So you eat something, your blood sugar goes up, your pancreas is alerted. Hey, blood sugar is high. It produces insulin. Insulin gathers up all the sugar, but when it goes to put it into your cells, there's resistance. There's resistance at the cellular level. So I like to explain it as there's a bouncer outside of your cell, right? Think about when you were 21 and trying to get into the dance clubs or trying to get into a bar, right? There was always a bouncer sitting outside the bar checking ID, right? So you would walk up to the club, you would present your ID And the bouncer would look at it, and if he deemed it real and legit, he'd let you in, right? So that's what's supposed to happen. Insulin's supposed to get that sugar right into your cell. But for whatever reason, there are some bouncers outside your cells shaking their heads saying, no, nope, we're not letting you in the cell. And so at this point, your body is still getting alerts that your blood sugar is high, as it should, because it's not in the cells where it's supposed to be. So what happens is the pancreas has to make even more insulin to help get that sugar into your cells. It has to work double time to get the same result as it did when you didn't have insulin resistance. You're making the pancreas work hard is pretty much what's happening. It's not working efficiently the first time, so the pancreas thinks, oh, I guess I didn't do my job. Let me produce even more insulin. All right? And this, well, I should say as a result of producing all this insulin, you're eventually making the pancreas have more wear and tear. You're creating more wear and tear on the pancreas. I want you to imagine, let's say... Pick a, pick a diner that's near your house, okay? So at our house, the Limerick Diner is right near our, our uh, one office in Limerick, okay? The Limerick Diner is right next door. If you have the same make and model toaster in your house as the one in the diner, which toaster do you think is going to give out faster, the one in your house or the one at the diner? It's going to be the toaster at the diner because they're dropping bread 
every 30 seconds. You might make toast twice a week. The more wear and tear on the appliance, the faster that appliance is going to give out. Right? And it's the same thing with your pancreas. The more wear and tear on your pancreas, the faster that organ is going to give out and start to shut down and show show its struggles. In fact, when you are insulin resistant, we estimate that the pancreas is only functioning at about 50% at that point. Okay? And when you have this condition of insulin resistance and your cells aren't responding to the insulin that you're making, and therefore you're making the pancreas work harder and harder, over time, it's going to cause that wear and tear on your organ and you're going to see signs of struggle. Okay? So... Pre-diabetes is a condition when the blood sugars are higher than normal, but technically not high enough to be diagnosed with diabetes. So pre-diabetes usually occurs in people that have insulin resistance. In fact, the two are often interchanged. Some people will say they're pre-diabetic, but really what's happening is they have insulin resistance. They just don't have the blood work to show a diabetic diagnosis yet. But if they don't make changes to their diet or lifestyle, that diabetic diagnosis is coming. Okay. So that is what's going on. There are there are um, bouncers outside the cells. The insulin can't get the sugar into the cells as a result. So the pancreas has to make more insulin. And as a direct result, the pancreas is starting to lose function. And I tell all of my clients, and I look them right in the eye, and I tell them, I love your pancreas. <laughs> and they usually laugh. Because nobody's ever told them that before. Not their spouse, not their parents. But I love your pancreas. And it's my job to make sure that that pancreas is working for as long as possible. You're 50 years old and you have insulin resistance. I got to make sure that pancreas can show up for you for the next 50 years. Because if you don't make changes to your diet and lifestyle that insulin resistance is going to turn into full-blown diabetes. All right. So let's talk a little bit more about who is um, susceptible to insulin resistance. So there's a couple of things that can cause insulin resistance. Uh, number one, if you're overweight or obese. Okay, so we still classify overweight as a BMI over 25 obese as a BMI over 30. So you can um, put your height and weight into a calculator online and you can see what your BMI is. Uh, as you gain weight, your cells become more resistant to insulin. So it actually becomes this vicious cycle. You gain weight, your cells are more insulin resistant. And when you're more insulin resistant, you're most likely going to gain more weight. And around and around we go. All right. The more weight you have, the more bouncers that pop up on your cells. So if you're overweight or obese, you are more likely to develop insulin resistance. If you're greater than 45 years old, 
you have a higher likelihood of developing. Well, and let's be honest. At 45, you've had over four decades of challenging your pancreas. And if we're really honest, most of us didn't really make great choices in our diets, you know, for the first 20, 25 years. A lot of times our our health in our 30s and 40s is a direct response to how we treated our bodies earlier. Uh, If you have a parent or sibling with diabetes, you're more likely to develop insulin resistance. If you are African-American or American Indian, Asian-American, Hispanic, Latino, Native, Hawaiian, Alaska Native, any one of those ethnicities do have a higher risk of insulin resistance. If you're physically inactive, that can raise your chances of insulin resistance. If you have health conditions like hypertension or high cholesterol, if you have a history of heart disease or stroke, if you have a history of gestational diabetes, that will increase your risk. If you have PCOS, polycystic ovarian syndrome, and we did a a whole podcast on PCOS a while back. So uh, if you'd like to know more about that condition that affects women, uh, you can listen to that. If you have sleep apnea, you're at higher risk for insulin resistance. Uh, Or if you have metabolic syndrome. So metabolic syndrome is this combination of medical conditions like high cholesterol, hypertension, and a large waist size. So what we consider a larger waist size, if you are a male, it's a waist size over 40 inches. Or if you are a female over 35 inches. Uh, So you can just take a uh, measuring tape and check your waist size and see if you fall into that category. You're also more likely to develop if you are taking certain medications. Uh, So the medications that can contribute to insulin resistance are a class called uh, glucocorticoids, which are basically steroids. Um, sometimes people will notice that, you know, when they go on steroids, they, they kind of blow up a little bit, they're hungrier, they're eating more, but steroids are known for increasing blood sugars, uh, or antipsychotics. So medications, um, medications for people with schizophrenia, bipolar disease, or even severe depression. So you always want to make sure that you are talking to your doctor and your physician if you have some of these pre-existing conditions, uh, whether or not um, you are at risk, and make sure that you're being monitored. Okay, so let's talk about how insulin resistance is diagnosed. Again, insulin resistance is is very similar to that pre-diabetic range. Uh, The two are interchangeable. So if you are getting regular blood work, a fasting blood sugar anywhere between 100 and 125 milligrams per deciliter would indicate insulin resistance. If your blood sugar is over 126, that is considered diabetes. A healthy functioning pancreas will show a fasting blood sugar under 100. So anything between that 100 and 125 range is what we consider insulin resistance. Uh, If you're getting an A1C measured, a glycolated A1C, a glycolated hemoglobin is another word for that. Uh, Anything between a 5.7 and a 6.4% 
puts you in the insulin resistant or pre-diabetic category. Anything over 6.5% puts you in the diabetic category. All right. So your A1C, just a quick note on what is an A1C. So your fasting blood sugar is basically a photograph, a snapshot in time. On April 3rd at 7.46 a.m., when we checked your blood, your blood sugar was at 102 milligrams per deciliter. Okay, so it gives us an indication of what your sugar was on that day at that time. Ideally, it's taken fasted because we want to see, you know, how's your pancreas working when you have no food in your system? When you're not taxing it with food, how is it responding? Your A1C is a measure of your red blood cells. We call it a glycolated hemoglobin. How much sugar is attached to your red blood cells? Now, your red blood cells turn over about every three months, okay? So your A1C is a measure of what is your blood sugar over time. So you may have a higher fasting blood sugar because it just so happens on that day. You may have eaten something higher sugar the night before. Your body didn't clear it out in time. Uh, But on average, your blood sugar is in the healthy range, So if you have a fasting blood sugar that's a little elevated, most likely your doctor is going to order an A1C because we want to see, was this just a one-off fluke or on average, does your sugar tend to to be higher? Okay, so the A1C gives us more of an indication of your overall diet. You can't skew those results. Like I remember I had a client one time who was diabetic and she was getting uh, chemo medication. And they would not give her her chemo if her blood sugar was high. So please don't ever, ever do this. I am not endorsing this. This was wrong. She knows it was wrong. But she would double up on her chemo meds the morning of chemo. Or I'm sorry, she would double up on her diabetic meds the morning of her chemo so that her blood sugar would be okay for her to get the chemo. I was like, you cannot do that. You are putting yourself at a high risk of your blood sugar bottoming out. And she was adamant about, I want my chemo. Now, had they taken an A1C, they would have seen that her blood sugar was way too high and she was not a great candidate for chemo that day. But because they were just looking at a snapshot in time on that day with a finger prick, they couldn't see that her fasting blood sugar was misleading. So something, um, if you want to be looking at, yeah, what is your blood sugar at this moment in time? You would look at a fasting blood sugar. But if you want to see what is your blood sugar over a three-month time frame, what is the average sugar, how's your pancreas functioning as a general whole, yes, then we would look at an A1C. You'll also note that your practitioner, your PCP, general practitioner, whoever you see, uh, they typically will not order an A1C any sooner than three months because... Red blood cells only turn over about every three months, so you're just measuring the same red blood cells. It doesn't make sense. So if your blood sugar is is higher, 
or it has been high, your doctor's probably checking it about every three to six months to stay on top of it. Okay. And again, if you're on some of these other medications like the steroids or the antipsychotics, uh, you want to make sure that your doctor is following up by checking your blood sugars just to make sure uh, your body can handle it. All right. So let's talk about what are things that you can do to treat insulin resistance. All right. So physical activity, just even starting with 20 minutes a day can have a profound impact. Anytime you exercise, that physically lowers your blood sugar, so then your pancreas doesn't have to work as hard to lower it through insulin. Weight loss is also recommended. Even just a 5 to 7% weight loss can put you in a healthier range for blood sugar. So, uh, you know, if you are obese or, or severely obese, you know, you don't have to lose all your weight to be in a different class. Just losing five to 7% can have positive uh, implications. And then obviously eating a healthier diet. So this is where the dietitians come in and we can help you create a plan. Um, some of my clients want to be very aggressive. They're like, get me out of this pre-diabetic range very quickly. I don't even want to have my toe dipped in the pre-diabetes. Uh, and then others are like, you know what, you know, help me just make some healthier choices because I want to get my blood work done again in six months. And I'm hoping that I can back myself out, but I know myself, I can't do anything too, too drastic because I'll never stick with it. So that's why working with a dietitian can be really, really helpful. Uh, we look at where you're at. We look at your goals. We look at your preferences. We look at you know, your routine and your schedule. We look at your, your desires in terms of how you want this to go, um, your motivation levels, and we map out a plan for you to be successful. So I am going to continue to plug body metrics as much as I can, because, you know, we are, are really passionate about helping people, not only from a weight management side, but also a medical nutrition therapy. That is what we do and what we love to do. So if you're, you're struggling with this or you have questions, please reach out to us. You can either call our office, you can go online to bodymetricshealth.com and we are happy to answer questions and steer you in the right direction. There's also a couple medications that you can take. Probably the most common one is metformin. Metformin doesn't lower your blood sugar. It just helps your cells be more responsive to insulin. So I usually describe it as it pushes the bouncers out of the way so that your body can work efficiently. So metformin is probably the number one choice medication to lowering, um, well, I'm not going to say to lower your blood sugar, but to help your body be more efficient so that your blood sugars are in a healthier range. Uh, there's also a supplement called berberine uh, that can be very effective and helpful. You do want to check with your doctor if this is something you're interested in taking because it does interact with a lot of different medications. And I just want to make sure that you are healthy and you're doing the right thing. 
Cinnamon can also help lower blood sugar. So some people will will put cinnamon on their foods or even take cinnamon tablets. Again, if we can keep your blood sugar a little bit lower, then your pancreas doesn't have to work so hard to clear so much sugar out of your blood. All right. So hopefully after all this information, this will help kind of talk to you about what is insulin resistance If you want to know, do I have insulin resistance, what you're going to do is get blood work, right? I I don't know if you have it. There's not a lot of symptoms of insulin resistance. Uh, The only symptoms that I have heard about, um, but they're rare, is you may have some changes to your eyesight, um, or some people have a darkened skin under their armpit, although that's pretty rare, but you aren't going to necessarily feel different if your blood sugar is a little elevated. You won't. You're not even going to notice it. All right. Now, if you're diabetic, the clear symptoms of diabetes are increased hunger, increased thirst, and increased urination. And sometimes there's even weight loss with that. But with prediabetes or insulin resistance, you're not going to feel anything different. So if you're wondering if you fit into this category, maybe you have a lot of the risk factors, best thing you can do is get some blood work. All right. See where your numbers fall. And I'm happy to go over blood work with you. I spend a lot of time with my clients going over their blood work. Um, Sometimes doctors have an opportunity to call and go over that with you. Uh, sometimes they don't. And so if you're looking for that information, you, you can pull up your blood work on your portal. A dietitian can go through all of it with you and explain what's going on and help you game plan for what's next. So we are happy to help you, but hopefully this, this podcast gave you some direction as to where to go and what to look for and how to treat it. All right. So the only thing left is your recipe. Uh, For this week, I'm actually giving you a recipe for a cherry salsa. I absolutely love cherries. Uh, When we were up in Michigan, they went to a a shop in Holland, and it was all about cherries. And they had a cherry salsa. They had cherry jam. They had dried cherries, chocolate-covered cherries. Those are not my favorite. I'm not a chocolate fruit person. Um, I just love just regular cherries, but I'm going to give you a recipe for a cherry salsa. So for this, you're going to need one cup of cherries pitted and finely chopped, two tablespoons of red onion, finely chopped, two tablespoons of cilantro chopped, a half of a lime juiced, a quarter teaspoon of salt, and a half of jalapeno pepper. Um, That's optional. If you want a little bit of heat, uh, you can keep some of the seeds or you can remove the seeds and finely chop that. And you know my favorite recipes are the ones you just take all the ingredients and dump them in a bowl. So go ahead and do that. Mix it together and enjoy. All right, guys, that's what I got for you today. As always, I hope you have an excellent week and I'll see you next time. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Nourish Eat Repeat podcast. If you found this episode helpful, please rate, review, and share with others so we can reach and help more people. For more information about nutrition, how to work with a dietitian, or about any of our programs, visit our website at bodymetricshealth.com. 
You can also find us on socials. We're on Instagram and Facebook at Bodymetrics Health. The book Nourish, Eat, Repeat is available on our website and Amazon in both paperback and ebook versions. Once again, I'm Adrienne Delgado, and I'll see you next week.